Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. How do I survive foreclosure? The answer is do something. Hi, this is Neil Garfield on blogtalkradio.com this 25th day of February 2021. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Thanks to those who sent birthday wishes on my 74th birthday last Saturday. (laughs) There are huge differences between those who fight and those who give up. 96% a percentage that has held steady as long as I've been following it for 15 years, 96% of all homeowners faced with foreclosure give up without any fight at all. They're blissfully unaware of the fact that they are giving a gift of their home to people who are simply part of a scheme to trick them. It works because homeowners believe the living lies that foreclosure players tell. Like all huge lies, if you tell it often enough, people get to talking and reinforce the lie. And at some point, nearly everyone comes to believe it. But it's still a lie. The rest of the homeowners faced with notices of default and sale end up with various victories or settlements, depending upon how far they push. But there's a rub. Most of them don't know what buttons to push and when, and that's what I'm going to discuss tonight. First thing is that whether you're a lawyer or a pro se homeowner, get TV and movies out of your mind. Everything you think you know will lead you down rabbit holes and defeat. That's exactly what the Wall Street banks are counting on. The biggest mistake that homeowners make is forgetting that they are defending and not prosecuting. So they make allegations that are probably true, but which have no way, which they have no way of proving unless they have enormous resources to process potentially millions of documents, hire investigators, and take dozens of depositions. Foreclosure is only about collection of an unpaid debt. If there is no debt, there is no foreclosure. I don't care what they call it. You must accept the simple fact that you will never, you will probably never prove that the debt does not exist, that nobody owns it, and that there is no source of authority to administer collect or enforce it. The reason that you won't prove it is that the only party who knows the truth and has the evidence is not a named party in any litigation if it involves uh, 
claims of securitization. The only party who knows the truth and has the evidence is the securities brokers who masqueraded as investment bankers. But you can't bring them in as necessary or indispensable parties because in legal terms, they're not. They make no claim to owning the underlying obligation. Neither does anyone else except the designee named plaintiff or beneficiary in a foreclosure. Outside of that, there is nobody claiming ownership of what you think is your debt. They don't own or control any account receivable, and therefore they have no legal stake in the outcome of foreclosure litigation. Yes, they're going to get the sales proceeds of a forced sale. The reasons for that are beyond the scope of what I'm talking about tonight. But no, it's not because they're going to credit an account receivable with your name on it. If such an account existed, the lawsuit or claim would be brought in the name of the party who owned the underlying obligation as required by Article 9, Section 203 of the universally adopted Uniform Commercial Code, verbatim. But in cases where there is a named securitization scheme or in which a concealed securitization scheme is involved, the named claimant, beneficiary, or plaintiff is usually some bank name that has national name recognition as trustee for, and then there's a bunch of words that imply or assert the existence of a non-existent trust which, by the way, even if it did exist, has no absolute, has absolutely no financial interest in your transaction and doesn't care about the outcome of the litigation. The named trustee, trustee is only a placeholder. It is virtually identical to MERS, and I would argue that it is also identical to whoever you think your servicer is. They're just placeholders. And the failure of the courts to recognize even the possibility that this is true has resulted in doom for nearly all homeowners against whom foreclosure procedures are weaponized. There is a huge difference between knowing something and doing something. So one of the things that I keep seeing is lawyers and pro se litigants kind of grumbling about how this is fraud, this is that, this is whatever, but they're not making the allegation in the way that it needs to be done if you want to prove something. And I'm saying that you should not, in defending the foreclosure, attempt to prove anything. Everyone knows or at least suspects that the current wave of foreclosure since the year 2000 has been some sort of scam. Only experienced trial lawyers have been successful most of the time in turning back efforts to foreclose. Even some pro se owners have been successful, but most homeowners either do nothing and default, and most of the rest put up a smoke screen that the foreclosure mills just steamroll over in court. 
any homeowner who is in for delay will most likely lose. But fully two-thirds of the homeowners who go in for the pound and persist to the end win their cases or are offered settlements that are too good to pass up. For 16 years, I've been sounding the alarm about these illegal foreclosures. I have described the specifics of the greatest economic crime in human history. Now it's time to get all homeowners to do something. It's time to stop the threat of foreclosures and get down to the business of awarding all the players the fruit of the extra-legal scheme of what is called securitization of residential debt, but which was not the securitization of residential debt because securitization means the sale of the debt in multiple pieces to multiple investors. That sale never occurred. In actuality, any semblance of what could have been an account receivable arising out of that was extinguished, and and that was done intentionally. It was no accident. And for 16 years, homeowners and their lawyers have largely missed the opportunity to retain the biggest investment in the lives of anyone who ever purchased a home. So the first two rules I'm going to discuss tonight, which I wrote already on the blog, along with others, are how to use use the information you have about the insufficiency of the case against a homeowner in what is styled a foreclosure, but in reality is just a grab for profit. First, don't try to prove any fact. Don't allege it, because then you have to prove it. If you allege something, you are inviting the burden of proving it. It doesn't matter whether your opposition is evil. It doesn't matter whether there was fraud committed somewhere along the line. What matters in foreclosure is if there is an unpaid debt, you owe it, and it's in default. That debt can only exist if somebody is the owner of an account receivable on the general on their general ledger and it's there because either they paid for it or they're the trustee and someone who had paid for it entrusted your underlying obligation to them what i'm telling you is that never happened there was no sale nor did anyone entrust the named trustee, U.S. Bank, Bank of New York, Mellon, whatever, with any obligation of any homeowner. Second, do contest the allegations, exhibits, assumptions, and presumptions. Do this with the knowledge that wherever MERS or a remit trust is asserted or implied to be involved, that the foreclosure mill has no objective evidence to support their claims as to the existence of the debt, the ownership, or authority to administer, collect, or enforce. As a side note, I've received a bunch of questions in recent days. I don't encourage the use of paralegals as a primary resource. 
Both the analysis and drafting should be done by competent trial lawyers. Unsupervised paralegals will reach out on the Internet to copy other work without knowing what fits and what doesn't and without knowing how to use the information. And they deliver written documents that the homeowner doesn't know what to do with. You end up with something that sounds good to you and maybe to the paralegal, but not to the judge who is the only one who matters. I'm not saying the paralegals are useless, quite the contrary. They perform vital services at far less expense than a lawyer. But unless they're operating under the direction of a, 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 of a trial attorney, their output is likely to be useless or nearly so. So let's explore what you should be doing rather than what you should not be doing. First rule of litigation is not to be right, but to persuade the judge that you're right. That may sound a little hokey, but any good trial lawyer will affirm that to be true. Being right is almost irrelevant. So it's all about persuasion, and all persuasion begins with anchoring on basic truths that are undeniable by anyone. Never lead with an arguable point unless you are attempting to distract from the issue at hand. Always lead with some basic truth of the situation. That's what adds to your credibility. An example of this comes from a now buried transcript that I was able to read before it was entombed by a confidentiality agreement uh, with the uh, between the foreclosure mill and the homeowner and his lawyer. I've changed a few things around so he can't be identified. The lawyer, it was a motion in court, and basically, here's what happened. The lawyer for the homeowner stands up and he says, Your Honor, we all agree if there is a loan account receivable that has not been paid, the loan is payable. We all agree that if a scheduled payment has been missed on that account, on, the, on that account receivable, the homeowner is delinquent or in default. And we all agree that if the loan account exists on the general ledger of the plaintiff and the default persists, the plaintiff is entitled to administer, enforce, and collect that debt through foreclosure or any other legal means available. And we can all agree that in our legal system, upon presentation of documents that are at least facially valid, certain presumptions arise that favor a plaintiff who is the owner of the underlying obligation and who has maintained the right to enforce it. Then the lawyer paused. He paused for a moment to let all that sink in. Wanted the judge to be nodding in agreement with him. Many lawyers and pro se litigants get so nervous in the courtroom that they just drone on instead of watching carefully for what is striking the mark and what's missing the target. I have a lot of friends who are judges. Privately, many judges refer to those kinds of presentations, the nervous presentations, 
as the best substitute for Ambien. Pause on what is indisputably correct establishes the credibility of the speaker. And the way it is presented so that the judge can follow along and and you pace what you're saying with the reaction from the judge, that's what determines the persuasion of your case. So then he continued. Your Honor, our position is simply that this plaintiff has no such account receivable and that it has no objective evidence of the existence of such an account receivable on the general ledger of the plaintiff. The only logical conclusion, then, is that there is no account receivable that is being enforced in this courtroom. Relief must, in that case, be denied as to this plaintiff. Again, he paused to let that sink in and let the judge decide if, it was a woman judge, if she agreed with a conclusion that the judge obviously was not inclined to reach. Generally, they rubber stamp in favor of foreclosure bill. But this lawyer is making statements of fact that are legally true and required. But obviously, if there was no such account, then the case would need to be decided in favor of the homeowner. Notice how the lawyer used terms of art from what is called generally accepted accounting principles, also known as GAP. He's introducing an outside index or anchor that is an independent objective determinant of truth. And GAP says it doesn't go on the general ledger unless there's a transaction. That should be a financial transaction of some kind. If there was no such transaction, then it doesn't show up on the general ledger. What I'm telling you folks is that no such transaction ever occurred. It was never meant to occur, and it didn't occur. Then he continued again. Your Honor, the defense strategy is entirely dependent upon discovery and some information and testimony of expert witnesses who have informed us and convinced us that the debt, note, and mortgage are simply not owned by this plaintiff and that this plaintiff has no representative authority for anyone who maintains an account receivable reflecting payment of value for the alleged underlying obligation as required by state statute adopting Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code, verbatim. Another pause for emphasis, and note how he doesn't give an inch. He refuses to admit that there is any account receivable or loan account, but he's emphasizing the fact that this plaintiff has no such account. And then he concludes with, Your Honor, the existence of the alleged loan receivable is central to any effort to collect on it or to enforce it by any means. Under the rules of civil procedure that I know from personal experience, sometimes adverse 
experience, he said, that you strictly enforce, we are clearly entitled to state such a defense and to pursue objective evidence through discovery. The evidence sought will either support or undermine the factual or legal presumptions that opposing counsel wishes to have the court apply. I might add that based upon my personal experience, opposing counsel will either fail or refuse to provide normal responses to these simple discovery demands even after a court order is entered compelling such a response. So the first thing you should notice about how that lawyer presented his client is that there was no conspiracy theory basis for the defense. Either the debt exists or it doesn't. If it does exist at all, then either it it exists on the general ledger of the claimant or it doesn't. If it doesn't exist on the general ledger, there is no allowable claim by this plaintiff. That's it. What you want is to win, not prove a point. So the primary focus of all foreclosure defense strategies should center around the existence of the debt, regardless of how counterintuitive that sounds to the homeowner or the attorney. How can the debt not exist? Again, I've covered that on my blog, etc. You can believe it, you cannot believe it, but I'm telling you, if you put it to the test, that's how homeowners win. Limit your defense narrative to the existence, ownership, and authority. You can and should deny even that it is a legal foreclosure if there is no account receivable owned by the plaintiff or beneficiary. How can it be a legal foreclosure if there's no underlying obligation? Notice the focus is on the money trail rather than the paper trail. The paper trail is a rabbit hole where the foreclosure mill lawyers will run rings around you. You need to remember that this is about money, not paper. Your opposition will use paper against you because they have no money trail. You must defend with aggressive demands and follow-up motions for responses to discovery. Don't get lost in the weeds of paper and stop being afraid of challenging whether they have the goods on the money trail. It's not a gamble in cases where securitization is part of the case. In nearly all cases, they don't have or can't give it to you regardless of the amount of court sanctions levied against them. That is where you win. Because once it is firmly established, you can ask the court, establish that they won't answer, you can ask the court to establish a negative inference as to this claimant relating to the existence, ownership, and authority over the alleged debt note and mortgage. The legal part of this is simple. All states hold that a purported transfer of a mortgage instrument is no transfer at all if the underlying obligation is not also transferred. So all presumptions aside, there is no transfer if there is no payment. It's called a legal nullity. So when you ask for proof of payment for the obligation that was used in entering data on an account receivable on the general ledger of a company, they have nowhere to hide. You know 
I know you think that the proof must exist and that the account must exist, but you have to realize that's what the judge is thinking too. So you must take the leap, take the risk, and start making tracks in the sand, just like Wall Street brokers do when they have companies declare themselves to be services for unknown or falsely named creditors. Send them a a qualified written request. Send a debt validation letter. Send a complaint to the CFPB. Send a complaint to the State Attorney General Consumer Division. And file defenses that are simple and entirely dependent upon the proposition that your opposition cannot and will not give you proof of payment. And that means that there is insufficient evidence to grant a foreclosure sale. That's all you need. If you want to file a proactive lawsuit for wrongful foreclosure or anything else later, then do it. But don't make it an issue in the defense of the foreclosure. Of course, the best defense is not to be there, to quote from uh, Karate Kid, I think, part two. But otherwise, if you're going to close with one of these people who's a feeder for a securitization scheme, get copies of all closing documents and ask for confirming documents afterwards as to the money trail. Challenge everything as early as possible and focus on three things. Objective evidence supporting the implied existence of the account receivable, the ownership, and the authority. If you persist on that early and properly, you will probably win. The specific methodology is as follows. You start as early as possible. Of course, some of this information is coming to people who are already in process. But in an ideal world, you would start challenging statements and notices right after closing. Challenge the notice of substitution of trustee in the non-judicial state because it was filed on the (coughs) supposed authority of a beneficiary who did not maintain an account receivable on the general ledger. Send a qualified written request, debt validation letter, complaints to the CFPB and attorney general. File a motion to dismiss in judicial cases or a petition for TRO in non-judicial. Key area, which I think I've made clear by now, discovery, interrogatories, request to produce, request for admissions. Then follow up on that. This is where most people fall down. Motion to compel. Then follow up on that. Second motion to compel because the judge is going to give them more time. Then follow up with motion for sanctions. Then follow up with a motion in limine to bar their evidence. And a motion for the court to take a negative inference as to the existence of an account receivable owned by this plaintiff or this beneficiary. Make an objection to their proposed exhibits. Make an objection to the proposed witness. How many times have I seen where they give a list of possible proposed witnesses that's like five pages long with 30 names on it, and you have no idea who the witness is and nobody to research? File an objection to proposed testimony 
using the rules of foundation, relevance, and materiality, as well as hearsay. Then there's after-the-sale litigation, where there's an assignment of bid and a change of name that suddenly you have a different party versus any judgment that was entered or any notices that were filed. And then there's also some possibilities, which I'm looking into, of motions based on the right of redemption and the right of the so-called borrower to, to recover overage. This might enable the borrower to show that there was no loss to this plaintiff and therefore they're entitled to the entire proceeds. So that's it for tonight. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Good night. I hope this was helpful. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 